0: Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy.
1: Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have Tony Guerra. He's a professor at Des Moines Community College in Iowa, and he earned his PharmD from the University of Maryland, Go Terrapins. And he also has Tony PharmD YouTube channel, which has 20,000 subscribers, and he's published 21 audiobooks with sales of over 32,000 over the last four years on topics of career pharmacology and pharmacotherapy. He's also the host of Pharmacy Residency Podcast and invites listeners to visit residencyhelp.com or join his email list. Dr. Guerra, can you uh, introduce yourself or add anything else that you might uh, have experience with pharmacy here?
0: Hey, Eric. First, thanks for uh, having me on. I've been listening to your podcast and uh, really cool to hear the APHA new CEO before he even takes office. So uh, it was kind of uh, cool to get that snapshot. No, basically, I've been working as a professor of chemistry and pharmacology here at a community college for the last 10, 11 years, and I've kind of turned towards helping residents this year, uh, especially with their letters of intent, uh, because I think that just with my skill set, that's the way that I can help them the best, but what I wanted to do with you today is kind of talk a little bit about the number of graduates, uh, what's going on with schools, so that they can really know, okay, well, what are the odds that I'm going to get a job? What's what I do about my loans and, and make some good decisions as they move forward after graduation.
1: Yeah, and it might seem a little weird that we're talking about this on a political podcast, but given that kind of the hot topic of pharmacy schools popping up everywhere has been a huge debate in our profession and the rate of student loans is a hot topic even nationally, but especially in pharmacy, I thought this was a super relevant topic that kind of encompasses all of that. Part of the reason obviously, I asked you to be on here is you had shared some things about how pharmacy schools are facing issues with less students applying, higher acceptance rates, things of that. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit on some of those trends and some of those things that you know about?
0: Yeah. Let me first make a bit of an inflammatory statement, which is there are not too many pharmacy schools, in my humble opinion. You know, they're, they're expanding access to health professionals geographically. They provide new teaching methods. They've got like formats like in the round where the professor's in the middle and talking to everybody. They're working interprofessionally with physicians and they're giving options like three year schools in very high rent cities like San Francisco and places like that. The newest school of pharmacy only has 25 students and that's as many as my daughter's third grade class. So uh, <laughs> there's not a ton of graduates coming from those schools. What the problem really is, is the, one, acceptance rates, and I feel like the pharmacy school websites are also an issue. So I'd like to start with acceptance rates, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, go right ahead.
0: So uh, pharmacy schools, in the aggregate, increased their acceptance rate from 31.7% in 2004 for 14 straight years, so 14 straight years of increases, and it was 82.9% in 2018, So if we had 143 schools of pharmacy with 31.7% acceptance rate, I think we'd be fine. There would be no saturation, and we may even have a little bit of a supply-demand issue on the other end. And I think it's good to have more choice in pharmacy schools. But, unfortunately, we do have the situation we do with around 15,000 graduates, this really high acceptance rate. And when you talk about the money, and this is where the politics kind of comes in, especially with what they're talking about with student loan debt, the current classes are about two-thirds female, and so the graduating class of 2020, the women will take on $1.4 billion in student loan debt, and the men will take on $600 million for about 2.4, 2300000000 billion worth of student loan debt in a single year. Wow. So that's kind of the big talking point from Bernie Sanders, which is how can these people move on with their lives, and the average pharmacist finishes paying off their, their loans in 14 years, if they're going to be 40 when that life financially start, you can't do that. So that's the acceptance rates kind of in a nutshell. And then the the thing I posted was that uh, each month we get, an, well, I get an update from a number of, of faculty that can't express it, you know, on social media themselves because they work at schools and that would be, you know, a bad thing for them. But that uh, applications are down 27% and then applicants are down around 17%, but that's about 2,000 students in a single year. So that would be at 35,000 a student, around $70 million that the schools will lose, uh, in about 21 pharmacy school entering classes. So it's a ton of money, a ton of students, and they are just beside themselves like, why did this happen? Why is it exploding like this? And that's what I hope we can talk about, is kind of figure out between the two of us why all of a sudden there's an exponential drop in the students. And maybe some of your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. And you, the numbers you hit on are really eye-opening to me because they basically follow the timeline of my acceptance into pharmacy school. So in 04, there's a 31% acceptance rate. I know where I went, Toledo, I'm pretty certain it was lower than that because I think it was about one in four. But right about that same rate. That's pretty staggering that it now jumped up to three and four get accepted as opposed to basically one in four got accepted previously. On top of the fact there's more schools and there's more seats that are available to students to apply for and have a chance to get into pharmacy school. I think that's pretty pretty telling of how they've expanded that beyond the scope of the demand. So there was a demand back in 04, and now we've passed that point where there's almost a glut or a surplus. And pharmacists are graduating with that 170000 plus or minus in debt on average. And having a hard time finding a job, let alone a job that pays well, since we're seeing pay rates fall in our market as well, which is it's so many moving pieces with this, it's kind of hard to keep track of. And I know I just said a lot right there. But with that, obviously, we're seeing a lot of different factors play this. There was a demand, like we said, back in 04, when there's only one in about one in four, one in three that got accepted to pharmacy schools. And we're not seeing that trend. What other factors are you seeing that are kind of causing students to apply to these schools and what their perception of it versus what is reality?
0: Well, this comes back to something AACP did, which was they they actually created the Oath of the Pharmacist, or they created an update to it. And one line of it is, I will hold myself and my colleagues to the highest principles of our profession's moral, ethical, and legal conduct. And I won't talk about legal conduct, because I'm not an attorney. But my thought is that the moral and ethical side is, if one school publishes you know, employment numbers, then everyone should publish employment numbers. If one school has, uh, there's a college in the Midwest that uh, has uh, your your chance of getting a job at graduation is only about 50% and your chance of passing the NAPLEX is around 55%. I feel like that shouldn't be on a hidden PDF in the back <laughs> somewhere. I feel like that should be on the front. Like in New York, you know how they do those letters on the front of the restaurant? Can you imagine that they put a C grade restaurant and put the C somewhere in the back Yeah. Like, you know, that needs to be on the front. And I think that we talk about PBM transparency, but I think there needs to be pharmacy school website transparency where it is absolutely transparent. All the answers that those parents and kids have uh, are answered. But I think the reason the drop is coming is that the schools don't actually see it from our side on the pre-pharmacy side where we're actually seeing what they're experiencing. They're getting email after email, text after text, someone explained it to me like dating or going to the prom where it's like, well, imagine your prom date asked you out and then texted you 10 minutes later, like, Hey, I just want to see if you wanted to go. And then like called you 20 minutes after that and said, Hey, I was just wondering, did you make a decision yet about prom? And that's kind of what they're getting from pharmacy schools is, Hey, did you make a decision yet? Hey, you better apply. You should apply next month. Next month is our next priority deadline or whatever it is. They're catching on to this and they're like, okay, well, let's Let's check this a little bit further, and when they look for the numbers, the numbers aren't there. Only half of the schools publish employment data. So what do you think in terms of what a school should or should not have. Because you've got a great alma mater. Toledo has, what, almost a 98% NAPLEX score, so you can be very proud of them. Uh, what should be on their their website?
1: You know, I really think that's a crazy point you pointed out, that the school has a like a 55% chance of getting in, I think it was you said, or a 55% chance of passing NAPLEX and a 55, 50% chance of actually getting a job. So that means if only 55% are gonna be licensed pharmacists, and of that 50% are actually going to get a job, that means only- Oh people- no,
0: it's not exactly that that, but I'm just saying like, so they're, they're different. I just want to make clear that there's a NAPLEX pass rate, first time NAPLEX pass rate of 55%. And then uh number of students that had an offer at graduation was 50%. Oh, okay. So they're independent numbers. Okay, but no still, problem. I'll edit that out. But I still think it shouldn't be a PDF that's under required documents or something like that in the back.
1: Yeah, no, I really think that, and this is kind of a bigger picture that all colleges, not just pharmacy, I think pharmacy is more like the epicenter of it right now. And obviously in our world. Just some little internal bias there, but I think that they should put a lot of that right on when you're applying to the school, the field you're applying to, whether it be an English major, whether it be pharmacy, med school, because I think that's important, especially when you're going to take on you know so much debt, thousand dollars in total debt for each student on average, of course, going through pharmacy school, and it's going to be more for other like med students or other graduate degrees as well. And I think that that's a huge thing. You point out there's $2 billion in loans taken out or of debt for every year of pharmacy school across the nation. There needs to be some more transparency into that. I think when you start talking about billions of dollars, you're realizing oh, this isn't just chump change we're talking about. This isn't your mom and dad's pharmacy school where I can work a summer job and have this paid off. This is serious life-altering debt. I think you stated before we were even coming on the podcast, you're looking at $2,000 a month for 10 years if you take on that much debt. So if you graduate when, we'll say you're 25, you're not paying that off till you're almost 40, and that's huge. You basically have a full mortgage payment right when you come out of school, whether you have a job or not, that you can't expunge or wipe away very easily in any sort of fashion. So I think you did a great job in pointing that out there. I would love love to see that exactly what you said, the kind of like that restaurant grade on all colleges and some transparency to it as well. One thing I've kind of said in the past, and I don't know how well this will stick, but you know, the schools should be accountable, not just pharmacy schools, all schools for the debt that they give their students. And if they can get a job so that they should be very upfront if say for pharmacy school, it's a private school and they're charging $300,000 over the lifetime of that student going to that school to get their PharmD and they can't guarantee them a job, they should be held accountable for that debt to some extent as well. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I I definitely wish it wouldn't. You know, I feel like we can summarize this in one sentence. Back when we graduated, uh, bought houses and had mortgages, and the students that are graduating now graduate with a mortgage but don't have a house. And (laughs) it's this kind of upside down. What accountability does a school have for the financial success? And this, this return on investment idea with colleges is relatively new the last kind of couple decades. But the, you know, the numbers have skyrocketed, and I guess I just feel like everything needs to be there at the beginning so that they can make an informed decision and that they can know, you know, what are the odds that I could lose this entire bet? And some will. And yeah. where it's going to really come, I guess, full circle is March 13th is match day we're going to have 2,600 final year students who are not going to match.
1: Oh, wow. And
0: that's when, that's the very day that they figure out, man, they really got me. They really got me. I believed it. I thought I would, you know, get the residency. And yes, you know, there's phase two, which will take the top 10% of that group, about 260, 280 students. But the other, you know, whatever it is, uh, 2,300 students uh, are now looking for a job in March at the same time that 2,300 other students are looking for a job. I think that's where I really feel like the school should be on high alert and activate everyone in the alumni network and like, all right, well, look. And, and I hate to use the No Child Left Behind, but let's have no pharmacy student left behind. You know, yeah. let's make sure they all get jobs. And and I think that you know, while I, I wish they would, you know, be accountable financially for their getting a job, and and there's actually a college that does that—not pharmacy school, but uh, you pay later rather than pay you know earlier. Uh, but I think that. That should be a time set up for every single person to make sure that every single person has something going on at the end, because that is just 200,000, 2000 a month. You know, you want to start a family and it just as a parent, it's just like we're just about to pay for braces. (laughs) And I tell you what, that is that is a painful conversation. But it could not happen with, with those kinds of loans, especially if we double them. You know, my wife and I both pharmacists at 400000 Oh, gosh. And I think yeah. you
1: hit one thing on that that I really think we don't do well as pharmacists ourselves is using our alumni and the, the connections we have to build our scope of practice. You said kind of like no pharmacy student left behind. I look at it as no pharmacist left behind because obviously they're going to graduate and be pharmacists. Oh, sure, yeah. But at the same point, We need to make sure that we're expanding our scope to take care of patients. Like I mentioned some of the earlier podcasts and advocating for it and with Sue Paul, some of the things that pharmacists need to be expanding their scope into. We need to make sure that the alumni aren't looking at this as, well, they're not going to take my job. We need to look at it as, hey, what can I do to expand what I'm doing and maybe have them fill in some of the more. I want to say entry level, but the more rudimentary or basic level and functions of pharmacists so that I can use my knowledge to expand this practice and our profession in a way that helps patients. Or if they're really an older alumni, say like they're a baby boomer who's towards the back end that isn't as comfortable with some of the more PharmD and MTM type of things, not that all of them aren't, maybe they can look at, hey, here's what I can do to add this pharmacist to expand the scope of where I work or the pharmacy I own or the practice I have set up well, I can do what I'm comfortable with. I can put them what they're comfortable with, and then expand the profession as a whole, helping patients and driving costs down overall. Is that kind of what you what you see with that? What alumni should kind of start voicing their opinion on?
0: Yeah, I think I think maybe now we'd kind of turn the conversation to well, what do I do on match day if you know I've, I've got a one in ten chance of. of you know, matching with phase two, what are the other 2300 do? And I think we want to kind of look at what those options are. And I'll start with my own job, which I found on higheredjobs.com, which is a non-traditional job. I did 18 credits of chemistry, 18 credits of biology. So I'm allowed to teach those in a community college with my PharmD. Nowhere in it did they say, we want a pharmacist. It was just me kind of starting to look outside of pharmacy because this was during the crash, yeah. And so I had kind of the same experience back in 08, 09, where I'm like, all right, well, what do I do for a job? I had a part-time job. I was maybe getting 20 hours a week uh, as a pharmacist, and this is what came up. But I think now is kind of the time to make sure that if you're in pharmacy school, you do take advantage of a second degree. Uh, I know that Anna Shields, who was at Drake, uh, got an MBA, and she ended up with residency in Washington State, but she did really well. Moat Fredericks, who is a P4 graduating from the University of Iowa, he's doing an informat or he did an informatics master's, and all of a sudden the farm D isn't just the farm D. All of a sudden it's a completely different thing, and so what I think we you know want to continue the conversation is is, well, what alumni have been successful with what other degrees or what other credentials that you know did get them a position that they're happy with in is high paying. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And I really think it's important, even for pharmacists who have been out, to look at possibly getting other degrees to expand what we're doing. On a previous podcast, I talked with uh, the University of Cincinnati Dean, Neil McKinnon, and he talked about working in public health and how underrepresented pharmacy is in that field, but how almost in demand a lot of the services we can do with provider status would be in the rural health field for helping increase access to care, preventing major health issues, and preventing hospitalizations whether it be diabetics or simple strep throat test, other those those, some things that pharmacists and PharmD students look at as, oh, I can do that. I just wish I was allowed to do that. And I really think the master's in public health field would be something that if I was a pharmacist going to school right now would be something I would also pursue because the government's looking at ways they can also keep costs down. If we have pharmacy in that conversation, besides just physicians and nurses, that's another Avenue we can explore with some knowledge and some insight to help truly drive some of those costs down and better take care of people. That was something uh Dean Neil McKinnon had said. I know there's also pharmacists out there, like you had mentioned informatics. Richie Waith has really kind of taken off with VUCA Health down there in Miami. And shout out to him, he's been an awesome support for me on this podcast. He has really kind of explored some of the more of that digital side of pharmacy and reaching out to patients in a one-on-one setting or make it the pharmacy information accessible from a pharmacist's point of view and a pharmacist knowledge set. And he even admits that, you know, while I'm putting this things, these sort of things out there. There's also interpretation you need pharmacists to also work with them, kind of coach them through a lot of these things in case they have questions and things like that that come up. So I think that kind of working on one of those burgeoning fields, whether it be in the government sector to really try and drive costs down or informatics would be a huge one that pharmacists are just underrepresented in and that we can make a huge impact with our knowledge of pharmacology.
0: I definitely agree. I know Drake down the road uh, offers uh, dual degrees like the MPH, and I think it's just a couple thousand more. MCPHS just started, if you get any degree from their school, that you also get a free master's. Uh, And it's an expensive school, so don't get me wrong. Uh, But it's 100% tuition scholarships for any of their six online programs. And one of them is Master of Public Health. And then there's Regulatory Affairs and things like that. So I think they're taking that step saying, all right, well, the PharmD is not going to be enough. They're spending quite a bit on the PharmD. So if you get the PharmD here, then what we'll do is we'll give you this master so that you can uh, differentiate yourself as you move out so i think that as you're looking towards a pharmacy school and kind of picking uh, which one you want to go if you're on the pre pharmacy side definitely you know how much is that dual degree does it come with it and to kind of make sure that you can enter those areas without having to do a residency because that's still a financial burden to to take on 40 to 50,000 only a year for a couple of years yeah. and continue have that on but i guess what i wanted to really ask you because now you've kind of talked to some of the very top people at talked at Idaho Pharmacy Association very top of APHA i know you've talked to i think richard waith i guess what non traditional roles have you seen people succeeding in. Because uh, you, I believe in real life, have the same traditional role I had for almost a decade before I ever moved out to side hustles and things like that.
1: You know, it's interesting. I've obviously talked to a lot of people for this podcast. And the biggest thing I've seen where I'm seeing the most success, and this is going to sound really weird, it's very like bimodal with it. And I'm not seeing as many, I, I don't think, I could be wrong on this, of the Gen Xers. I'm seeing more of the the baby boomers who are really trying to, being the pioneers of our profession, if you will. They have the experience, they have the credentials, they have the connections, and they're really pushing forward by using those. And then we're also seeing millennials who, I don't want to say have nothing to lose, but are just kind of like, you know what? Screw it. The system's broken. I'm going to do it this way. And here's what I'm going to go do with that. And I can, I feel like I can say that because I'm a millennial and I'm trying to do something a little different here with this podcast, but I know Richie Waitha is down there, obviously with VUCA health. I've seen, there's a pharmacist who started down in Texas. I believe his name is a uh, Will Douglas. He's actually running for political office down there in Texas. He's also started his own pharmacies and services, and he's really changing the game with kind of what he's doing down there. We have, uh, I believe it's Dr. Martez Prince, who is featured on Oprah. Again, he's wow. do, he opened up his own. He's doing something different over there. He's using his connections to his community to help, help patients and help build up our profession at the same time. So really what we're seeing is a lot of the entrepreneurs who are just kind of looking for a mold that they can put, I don't wanna say a 1% twist on, but just a small nuance to, and then run with it. And I've, I know some people who are working with pharmacogenomics. They're working on leadership councils and things like that down in North Carolina. They're just doing awesome things that if you would have said even 10 years ago, no one would have thought that was even an option or that could have happened. So I really think that that's why we're kind of at a, a huge point with these schools where they're teaching us all the pharmacy routes. And I'm glad that one school really is throwing in the MBA for free, I guess. I, then again, I guess you have 200 grand in debt. I don't know about that school specifically. They can probably afford to give you a, an online master's degree in something. Although it probably also does help their alumni donations in the back end.
0: Yeah, no, and I think it is, uh, you know, kind of getting that responsibility and saying, look, if you don't publish the data, then we can't help you. And I don't want to be in, in such a way that I'm like, you know, you need to publish that because students need to know. Well, sure, they need to know. But also, if there is an issue we and you hide it, then we can't help you. We, because we don't know there's a problem and we want to, pharmacists want to help people and we want to help our alma maters. And I think we can, if we know there's a problem, if we know that they need our help. But uh, again, I guess uh, I, I, I lucked out. I want to say um, <laughs> that I got you know, my position and have been in it for a long time, but I guess, what would you say to somebody that's graduating this year? If you were doing kind of the graduation speech, what would be the one thing you'd want to leave them with?
1: Man, that's a tough one, especially for pharmacy school. I think the biggest thing I would tell them would be that whatever you do, put, make sure it's something you're passionate about so you can put your best foot forward with it and make sure it's something that really makes an impact on people's lives. Because that's no matter what is what's gonna matter in the end, especially as a pharmacist, is how much impact are we able to make in people? I don't know if referenced this person previously on the podcast, but anybody who went to Toledo in the past probably 60 years up to maybe the last decade knew who Doc Schlembach was. And he was a professor at Toledo, past dean. But he really put that little care with people. And when it came to getting alumni donations, that's what he used to help build our own pharmacy school. In fact, we didn't have our own pharmacy standalone building until 1999. And it was basically raised by funds he had made by reaching out to alumni that he had helped support. He even paid for some of their books and some of their schooling just to get them through school. He really made those type of connections with people. And for him, it wasn't, it wasn't about just the job. It was about making that level of care. And he knew if he put that care into somebody, they would put that care into their patients and that would make the world a better place. So it's kind of like a waterfall cascading effect. But when you see things like that, that's my biggest thing I would probably tell people is use that type of logic to do unto others to help make it a better place. And that's what you're seeing with all these people who are being successful. They're using their knowledge to take it that one step and cascade it and make it a better place. We're not seeing people who are jaded in pharmacies because there's too much workload that are making a difference. Now, does that need to change with reimbursements? Yes, that totally needs to change so we can be able to make those positive impacts at every level especially of pharmacy. Especially
0: with deprescribing, especially yeah. With deprescribing.
1: Yeah, yeah. the New York Times mm-hmm. articles that have come out recently, which I'll be going over soon, we're amazing for kind of pointing that out and looking at this untapped resource that we're so burned with, we aren't able to make as big of a difference as we should in pharmacy.
0: No, and I agree. And, and I think what's happening now is that they're seeing that, you know, we've got this kind of flat BLS, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, number, that there's going to be 0% job growth in pharmacy. But that's the thing. It doesn't have to be 0% job growth. It might be in pharmacies, but that doesn't mean that pharmacists can't expand their roles to make that number wrong because the number was wrong before. It was like 14% and 6% now zero, (laughs) but we can turn it the other way. We can open up doors to make it so that it goes back to 6% to 14% but we're going to need a lot more cooperation from each other and and working interprofessionally to make that happen. And and shows like yours that kind of uh, just really highlight the interprofessional abilities that we have are are really helping out, I think.
1: I think we kind of talked quite a bit about that part, kind of spinning it back to some of the school things a little bit and focusing Uh on more of the pharmacy schools. You said you don't think there's too many, but do you think that maybe they opened or accredited too many too fast?
0: What I think – is wrong, or what I think the issue is, is that there is no oversight or there is weak oversight over what they can say to the students. So I'm going to give you some concrete examples of ways that a pharmacy school can get an advantage over another pharmacy school in the recruitment process. Okay. So there's uh, an East Coast school reports that 31% of its 2019 class had no job at graduation. And then another Midwest school has a 42% unemployment rate. So those two are being very honest. But on the other side, you've got, on the West Coast, a school that has a 99% employment in big, bright orange letters (laughs) in 2017, putting no notation on how it happened. So here are schools being very honest on the one hand, on the coast in the Midwest, and then this other one on the West Coast has dated data. But as an applicant, do I go to that 99% school or do I go to the honest schools? Yeah, and so tough. what's happening is they're kind of being, I don't want to say steered, but they're being moved towards that. They can also change their unemployment or when, when they take it. So the best time to do it is at graduation. They'll get 100% returns and you'll, they'll know everybody, you know, who gets, who's graduating, who needs a job and things like that. But when they go six months out, obviously more will have jobs, but they also lose a lot of people. So that's another way to get an advantage. This is where it gets dirty, is where they're using old BLS numbers. So... Uh, there's a Midwest school, and I don't want to get sued, so I won't mention who it is, but they have what are called microsites. And microsites are mini-marketing sites, so you get your own website when you, you know, apply. And so it's hidden from the outside. And they have on their website that there's a 14% job growth from 2012 to 2022. But this school wasn't around in 2012. So that's clearly violating that AACP moral and ethical thing to say, okay, this is the job growth when it is clearly 0%, the BLS, that's the most current. It's like telling somebody, no, no, you just figure out what you want to do with the aspirin about cardio. You know, that's how it is. That's the old way. You know, the new way is different. Yeah. Uh, There's another school that uses, so like you mentioned, uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about a school that says, you know, pharmacists are in demand, that's their advertising. There's another school that uses a link, and this is one of those hidden parts of the website, uh, where they... They literally put the cost of attendance of 225000 over four years and then the net gross salary of 500000 next to it. But that's not what you really take home, and that's not what that school students actually graduated with. And so, you know, I could go kind of on and on about this, but what these schools are doing is they're pushing into such a gray area that is so un like that these are really sophisticated students and parents. This generation, my kids' generation, has been seeing ads since they were looking at their iPads. <laughs> so they know what's going on. And I think that this was the year that they're like, you know what, the cost of pharmacy school is now the same. You know, you go to this new f- school of pharmacy, it's $60,000 a semester or a year, and Harvard Medical is 68000 a year. <laughs> I'm just going to go to medical school. like, yeah. And that's what they're saying. They're like, okay, well, the return on the investment has gone over. So I think that's really, uh, you know, to answer your question about did they open too fast? It wasn't that they opened too fast. It was that everybody responded by just taking a couple more students that were not as qualified, yeah. And slippery slow blew up to this, yeah. Just and and now it's we're overfishing if you want to use that, you know, kind of uh, analogy. But yeah, that that's what I think happened.
1: Yeah, and it's hard too, because on the school's end, you know there's a lot of pressure to perform and to meet certain standards, right? There's certain recruitment, there's dollar figures they have to hit. That's all things that the people at the school are being held accountable for. And and
0: I don't think it's greed. I think it's survival. I think, you know, as the leader of the school, you're like, I don't want to unemploy all of these people. These are my friends. These are people that I know. I don't want uh, these students to to lose out. And so we'll take a couple more students so we can make it. But uh, that happened and happened and happened. And just like in 2007 with the housing crash, it was a very straight line to the bottom. And we don't know what the March numbers are. But in a month, we might find out that, yeah, it's going to just fall off a cliff.
1: Yeah, and I would love to see some more oversight from the Department of Education, not just on pharmacy, but on higher education in general. Absolutely. It looks like with the current administration, we're seeing the exact opposite of that. So I can't say that I would see that coming unless there was a major change at the top from the leadership in our country when it comes to some of those things. And I'm not even talking about just loan forgiveness here or anything like that. I'm not a huge fan of that. I think you should have to pay something back, obviously, for the education you get. But when it's predatory, that's a different ballgame altogether.
0: No, I think they're they've cracked down on the for profits, but I still think there's more more work that can probably be done there.
1: Well, and it's hard to say when something's truly for profit when it's university, use it to get students to the door to put them in something else or just to kind of still fund their coffers through government loans and Yeah, and again, like
0: that. I think you, you hit the nail on the head, which is, you know, I don't really care if my kid gets a pharmacy degree if I send him to pharmacy school. I just care that my kid gets a job and that they're happy whatever that job is. And if they decided yeah. it was something different, then fine. You know, I'm happy with that. But uh, I think we need to have more accountability in terms of, okay, their P4s, we're just going to let them go and we'll see them at graduation. We'll shake hands. Here's your alumni card. Uh, We'll see you later. I think that March 13th needs to be, we're going to put the line in the ground and we're going to make sure every single one of our students is going to graduate and they're going to have a job so that when they go across that stage, they don't have that embarrassing okay, such and such got the Mayo Clinic residency and then such and such is interested in a job in the Twin Cities area, <laughs> Yeah, you know? and And it's just cruel, like, oh, the parents are just sitting there next to their whole family and just like, this is not happening. They did not just announce that my kid did not get a job and I don't want that for anybody. So I think March 13th, every school should get with the students that aren't employed, didn't match and help them out.
1: Yeah, and I think that's huge too, to make sure that one, that they take pride in what they do. But that too, also because it's our profession, we shouldn't just have this race to the bottom for quality and for pay. We should really do what we can to keep those higher, to keep people engaged, to keep people working hard, to keep people proud in what they do and working to help make healthcare better for everybody.
0: No, I definitely agree.
1: Yeah. So, hey, one of the things we were talking about was there's – I could be wrong with this number, but you'll correct me. Something around 140 schools of pharmacy in the U.S. now. With some states having amazingly high numbers, like, like my state of Ohio has, I think, seven or eight. Florida's got, I think, more than that. California, obviously, has more. What do you think needs to be done to help reel in kind of the massive glut of pharmacists if you could pick one thing yourself?
0: If I could pick one thing myself, uh, it would be that everyone would have another significant credential besides the PharmD. So if I had done it when I was in school, it would have definitely been an MBA. I didn't end up getting it, but I do kind of run a business, and so I kind of learned over time. Mm-hmm. But that would be it. It would be, okay, great, your PharmD and residency, or your PharmD and MBA, or your PharmD and MPH, but that no pharmacy student get just a PharmD, because the PharmD is on the way down to the bottom. Right now, it, well, let's give an example of the MBA. Uh, the MBA price tag has gone down to around 11000 is about what you can get an MBA now for. And I think the same thing will happen to the PharmD now that it's kind of watered down.
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty sad because we, and I know when I went to school, we put so much time in studying everything, knowing all the nuances, getting absolutely grilled with some of the most ridiculous narrow in in the weeds (laughs) questions you can think of. And I can still think of some of those absolutely insane just like uses for drugs because of that. I know, And, you know, it's helped me because I had to know it to that level. I had to know down to, you know, this dose of folic acid was used for you know, hypohomocysteinemia versus used for just, you know, replacing a deficiency of somebody to knowing, you know, like you said, all the different doses for aspirin and what they're used for inappropriately. And that's just like the quick and easy, dirty stuff off the top of my head. And I think that's really sad because pharmacy shouldn't be something that should be watered down. It's something that can literally kill somebody where I guess an MBA could too, but not in the same way, not as quickly, not as effectively.
0: Yeah, I, I know it'll come back up and I know it will, but the question is how far down will it go? And I, yeah. my guess is that in three years, we'll be at, I think the entering classes will be around 5,000, about a third of what they are now. Oh, if, wow. if this acceleration continues. So if we go from 2,000 to 4,000 to 6,000, Because what I think is going to happen is that we're going to match the residency number. Mm -hmm. So whatever number of residencies there are, we're going to have that many pharmacy students, 5 or 6,000, something like that. So, And again, that's just a prediction, but I think that that's the direction we're going.
1: And with some of the generational things, like the the Gen X is currently the sandwich generation who's had a hard time taking care of their parents and their kids, millennials who are obviously getting up there, but boomers are hanging on to their jobs longer, even if it's just part-time eating up some of those hours. So we're not seeing that... Normal attrition that we see with physicians who would retire at the same age. We're seeing farmers hang out a lot, lot longer, even if just in a part-time capacity.
0: No, and and I know, and and I know, like uh, some people have, like three or four part-time jobs, and and every one of those is you know eating up hours. But eventually, that group's going to say, okay, things are good again. I'm going to you know be done with it. Uh, Hopefully, that'll open doors for uh, some of these new grads.
1: It'll be interesting to see if and when the stock market comes back a bit what happens with that and the fallout of jobs and what companies are left and things like that, just how it plays into pharmacy. No, definitely. Is there anything else you want to cover about pharmacy schools before I ask you the questions I ask everyone who comes on this podcast?
0: The reality is that I kind of gave up on warning people about things. Uh, I I can do my due diligence with the pre-pharmacy students that I help, but it isn't until match day where someone doesn't match and they're unemployed that they're really going to take uh, a look back and go, okay, what have I done? you know, I have $200,000 in debt. Uh, I have no job prospects because I put everything into residency. Uh, What do I do now? To those people, I say, you know, I I created residencyhelp.com so that you can come and get a bunch of free resources. I've got a bunch of free books on there, like the Unicorn Jobs book, the residency interview book and things like that, that they can use. And, And that right now is my mission is to help those people that I can through to get the residency. And then for those who didn't match the first time to do my best uh, with letters of intent and things like that to help them match in phase two. But that's the only other thing I would, I would mention.
1: Oh, I think that's awesome. And a noble cause that you're really trying to look out for those people who might be for lack of a better word forgotten amongst the, the recent graduates. All Definitely. Right. All right. So two questions I ask everyone who comes on here. If you could change one thing about pharmacy, what would it be?
0: There's little accountability for what a pharmacy school can put on a website and what marketing tactics they can use. And I don't want to get sued, so I can't show the links of those, you know, schools that have the gray areas. Uh, but your listeners and colleges, of ph- they can find, you know, the colleges that have NAPLEX, you know, claims for NAPLEX scores that aren't there uh, and that aren't higher than the average and things like that. But I would call for pharmacy school website reform <laughs> with five five things I want on every pharmacy school front website. I want their last year's employment rate, their last year NAPLEX scores, their graduation rate, their residency match rate, and then this is the big one, how much taking loans out for that cost of attendance will actually cost. So not tuition, which can be raised, yeah. but how much the tuition will actually cost to pay back so that 180000 works out to like 240000 or something like that, depending on the interest rate. So those five things. Put them on the front of the pharmacy website, give the good pharmacy school websites an A, just like New York City does with restaurants, and give the other ones a B or a C, just like New York City
1: does. I've seen some that are like that and some that even include maybe not the total, how much you have to pay back over the entire lifetime of the loan, but where they do include the room and board and food and things of that nature. So you can really break it down. I'll be honest, when I've seen those ones, I really give them credit and I really like it because that's what if you live in the area? What if you can find a way to cut those costs or what if you are going to to be burdened with those costs? That is something that makes a big difference to somebody.
0: No, and as a parent who will be graduating three people and as triplets, you know, <laughs> I've got three colleges to pay for in the same year. So I will be very, very uh, attentive to, to those things.
1: <laughs> yes, for sure. If you could change one law on pharmacy, federal or state, what would it be and why?
0: Oh, this one's not going to be popular. Uh, I think you should have to pass the NABPLEX to get your PharmD. And I'll tell you the why. In a PhD program, you have to go before people and say, this is my thesis, I have to defend my thesis, and this is why I should get a PhD. And I think that before you get your degree, you should actually take the exam to show that you did it, because what we're seeing, and we just saw the very first, I want to say the very first in a long time, uh, withdrawal of accreditation for a college of pharmacy, because they're graduating at a rate that is not commensurate with the, you know, what they're getting in terms of jobs and NAPLEX pass rates and things like that. So that would be my thing. I would say you've got to pass the NAPLEX if you want your degree. I wouldn't say MPJE because, I mean, Idaho is way ahead of everybody. Just yeah. get rid of the MPJE. Just be done with it. You know? uh, but, but definitely the NAPLEX. You should pass the NAPLEX. If, if I'm going to call you doctor, you should pass the NAPLEX.
1: Would you put a limit how many times they can take it? No. I'd make it unlimited. I
0: think that's unfair to, there's test anxiety and things like that. I I think that there are other reasons why someone would fail, but if you want to take it, you know, five times and pass it on your fifth time, then so be it. But, but I still think that if, if someone's going to call you doctor, then we have to have, we, we don't want to have the residency make that differentiation. Uh, we want it to be that, okay, I graduated from the school and I've proven that through this third party exam that I, I deserve this doctorate title or doctor title.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. I think that's, I actually totally agree with you on that. It might not be unpopular, but I do like that, that train of thought. So, Hey, thanks for coming on, uh, Tony Guerra. I really liked the, some of the things you brought up kind of challenging people's notions of how pharmacy schools run, operate and are advertised. Thanks again for coming on. I think it's a great topic that people are really going to enjoy.
0: Eric, thank you for having me on. And certainly I'd love to have you on the pharmacy residency podcast because I know what you do for a living uh, doesn't, you know, jive with the residency thing, but uh, your thoughts and your ability to connect uh, you've only had the podcast for just a little while, but you had the new CEO of APHA on, you had uh, someone very important in the Idaho pharmacy association. I think your ability to network has really something that I think these residents and future residents could learn from. So I would hope that, you know, maybe we could at a later time uh, have you on our podcast uh, at the pharmacy residency podcast.
1: I'll probably take you up on that. Some listeners can uh, look forward to and it's a little bit of crossover podcasting here. So that will be awesome. All right. So well, it, thanks again. Oh, no problem. Thanks again, Tony. Uh, listeners again if you can leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the podcast on any of your podcast platforms or write a review that really helps us get found that way but as always thank you for listening to the political pharmacist podcast your prescription for pharmacy and politics